Hello and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. My guest today is, uh, without a name, we're going to give him a nickname and we'll explain that here in a moment. So we're going to refer to him as Recalled. Uh, he may or may not want to go into uh, depth why, why we're using Recalled. But he is a uh, former member of the United States Army and a former private security contractor. And uh, Recalled, uh, thank you very much for taking time out of your day. Uh, welcome to the show. Oh, no worries. It's uh, it's actually uh, not a problem, and I appreciate you having me on the show. It's a bit of a an oddity that anybody thinks that my opinion actually means anything or <laughs> my, my history actually means anything. So I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, and we've come to know each other quite well over the years. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, we've we've talked a lot about our past and uh, you've got quite a uh, quite a past in this in this industry. Uh, and with that said, um, recalled, why don't you uh, go ahead and um, bring us up to speed in terms of what was your life like? What did you do? prior to getting into private security contracting and then what was it or what were it the event or events that that made you go ding i want to be a private security contractor well uh like you said i i started out in the army i uh, i enlisted right after i went through college my last semester hadn't been recorded yet so uh, i didn't get my um, E4. I don't know how it is in the core. If you've been through uh, college, you get promoted basically instantly. So uh, I had a leg up on a lot of the folks that I served with in the Army just because for some reason the Army gives you free promotion points, free uh, rank for having gone through school. But I went to uh, Fort McClellan uh, Military Police School. Uh, there are two different training battalions, at least there were back then. Uh, I was a Bravo Company 787 MP, and uh, I started my career as an enlisted soldier and learned everything that I know about the important aspects of MP school through uh, my platoon sergeants, drill sergeants, and, and the cadre there. Outstanding people, all of them, never had a problem with any of them. Uh, I know it's not as difficult as Marine Corps training, but we do uh, train the Marine MP, at least they used to. Again, I, I, it's been so long, I don't know if they still do that. But the reason I chose the MP is because after I went and visited all sorts of different units to see what I like on recruiting, a lot of people think that the military police because the police is in the name that our primary duty is to drive around in patrol cars and issue traffic citations and the like. But the reason I chose it was because a, it was a more technical version of infantry. So not as difficult as infantry, more technical. And I liked the fact that, that the primary duty of the combat MP is in the field almost all the time. And I know a lot of people don't like that, but I like that. I, I, I'm from Montana being out in 
the woods in the hills in the trees i it's just the thing for me so we do route reconnaissance we do area security we do intercepts we do convoy support we do all sorts of things in the mp court and that was just more entertaining to me than the non-stop grind that the, the grunts have to do and again this is not demeaning to the infantry at all this is just a statement that is not my choice and okay. I, I really enjoyed it but uh, doing my slog, uh, one day I'm talking to a friend of mine who was uh, Sergeant First Class, and he was an old-timer. And the company commander, his company commander, came up at the time and asked him a question. And I evidently was shaking my head because I didn't like the situation that they were in. And he said, so, well, then what do you think? And I gave him my answer, and he says, that's a pretty well-thought-out answer. He says, we should send you to OCS. And I said, sign me up. Mm. So the next thing you know, I get a packet that says, I'm assigned to go attend OCS. So I get detached and sent to OCS, and I take my class. It's uh, uh, I don't know if uh, – are you familiar with – uh, how how they do that for the army that the officer candidate school where they take enlisted people and then they train you if you pass the course they, they give you a commission so in the marine corps they're referred to i think as mustangs yes yeah well yeah there yeah the officer candidate school um and i'm not sure i'm a hundred percent on it but i do know that in terms of mustangs uh my recollection was if you had the distinction of being called a Mustang, it's because um, you were already in the Corps as a enlisted person, and right. you went through OCS as an enlisted person that was already in. So you were a Mustang, um, but there were people that went through OCS who weren't already in the fleet or part of the um, active duty uh, roster. Uh, and so I think that was the, the, the distinction between who got uh, – labeled a Mustang and who didn't, at least in the Marine Corps. I don't know if it's the same now, but that's the way it was when I was in. Okay. So um, I wind up going to OCS and getting a commission as a lieutenant, and I, you are allowed leeway in what you choose for your branch, and I chose MP again. Uh, I've served with a lot of people that changed branch when they went through OCS. I don't know what the driving force is behind that, but I suppose a bit of that is like when you enlist and they ask you where you'd like to go and you say, well, I'd like to go to Fort Chapter in Hawaii. I'd like to go to whatever. And of course you never get those. So (laughs) perhaps that's how they do it. They say, well, I would like to go back to infantry and they say, well, no, we want you in, artillery and they put them in artillery i don't know but uh, they gave me mp so i i just branched as an officer so back to fort mcclellan for my uh officer training but basically uh i served for 11 years roughly in the in the army and i served in 
Panama. We closed Fort Clayton. We were assigned as the MP company that was uh, the Provo Marshal unit for base security when we closed Fort Clayton. I was assigned in Germany to several locations in Germany. I ran Provo Marshal out of Bad Kreuznach, and I, I ran Provo Marshal out of Mannheim, where the MP battalion is. Hmm. Um, I served in Honduras. I served as a, a training cadre officer across the United States. We, I was in a specialty unit. We we had a training unit where we would run exercises for different units. And if a unit did not have organic artillery or air defense or MP or ordnance, they would send us to run exercises with them when they ran their large-scale exercises. And then we would teach them how to properly utilize those assets that are not normally organic to them. Because they weren't organic, they wouldn't necessarily know how to utilize them most efficiently. One of the problems that you often have when a unit gets assigned to a, a host unit is they're misallocated because they'll think, well, I don't really need artillery guys, so I'm going to have the artillery guys go run checkpoints. Well, artillery guys aren't trained for that. That's a misuse of the resource. Now, as commander, you're allowed to do that, but it wouldn't necessarily be prudent. So we would run exercises where you tell me what you need done, I tell you what we can do, and we'll try it that way, and we'll see if your leadership style using our assets in our way work for you. And nine times out of ten, that worked fine. That really wasn't a problem. Uh, one of the uh, other benefits to being in the MP was that our our assets are typically well dispersed in the AO, and they would report to me, and I would report to my supervisor, and sometimes I'd report to a colonel or a lieutenant colonel, but they would often say, well, I didn't know where you were at, and I would have to tell them, you're not supposed to know where I'm at, because if you know where I'm at, maybe the bad guys know where I'm at, and we don't want that, right? The idea of me in, the, in your AO is that I can be anywhere. I'm not a fixed emplacement. I would tell you where I need food or resupply, and we would meet there at that time. I would get food or resupply, and then we'd leave, and you would call in. I have mechanized equipment in this vicinity, or I have rotor wing aviation in this vicinity, and I would go check it out. That's it's the most efficient use, I would say, for that asset. It, it worked out very well for us. We we were very successful in training. I I was attached with, again, uh, and a couple air defenders, a couple artillery guys. Uh, I want to say an ordnance. I don't remember if this guy was ordnance or not. But there's, you know, about a dozen of us, and that's basically what we did. We'd go to Fort Leavenworth or we'd go to Fort Knox or Fort Riley, and we'd just train up units that uh, didn't have organic assets. And that was a great deal of fun. It was we, we trained a lot of active guys. We, their guard and reserve were involved. We trained a lot of them. And I, I know a lot of people badmouth uh, the guard and reserve, but overall, most of them are prior service enlisted guys or prior active duty guys and gals. 
and they actually are no less competent than the, their, their active duty counterparts. And in fact, I would say some of the best units I've ever worked with were guard and reserve. But at the same time, some of the worst units I've worked with were also guard and reserve. And for the exact same reason that if you have a community where they know each other, they tend to work well together because they know each other. But at the same time, I worked with a group. They were assigned to me from, I want to say, Washington, D.C., and the enlisted were running roughshod over their lieutenant because in the guard, the lieutenant was in charge. But in his civilian job, the enlisted people outranked him. And so they could boss him around. Mm. So when they yeah. got assigned to me in Germany, they were not the most professional. Right. Because of that inverse relationship. So now mm. that was unfortunate, but it we fixed it. Because we could see what was going on. We just mm. wouldn't let them run away with that. And I don't know, again, I, I tend to consider the Marines a little more regimented, a little less likely to pull crap like that. But I didn't have regiments of Marines working for me. I had Marines run guard for me, you know, run guard posts and things for me, but not so much for uh, regular stuff. Mm. But. Now, going along with that, the, the, my call sign of recall was because I resigned from the Army. I got a little fed up with uh, an officer that was, I'd say, uh, unprofessional. He couldn't pass weight and tape. He couldn't pass his PT, and he couldn't pass his weapons calls. But yet, mysteriously, he was always in grace. So I, I found out later when uh, – when I put my resignation forward that I had a battalion commander come and visit me and he said he didn't want me to leave, but he understood if I did. And to apologize, he said, I'd like to fix it, but I'm only a colonel. And it turns out that this company commander was married to a general's daughter. So he was untouchable. So that made me decide I didn't want to continue playing army anymore and i i resigned so the the recall term comes from two years later after 911 they they recalled me into the army for active duty and i i think i resigned in november or december of 2000 so then the next year uh 911 happened and so they recalled me right after that so I, I did another 15 months in Afghanistan for that. But that's the basis of uh, my call sign of recall. OK, uh, so so that, and that makes a lot of sense. Now, you you went through OCS. So you were commissioned as an officer then. And, Correct. OK, so what what rank did you hold uh, up until the, the the last time that you got out or what rank were you at the time that you I finally got out of? Your captain. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you got out the last time, what, 2001, early 2002, something like that? 2004. Oh, 2000. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they recalled me um, in the end of 2002, 
and uh, I reported at the beginning of 2003, and then I did 15 months overseas, and then with your lingering uh, terminal leave and such, uh, I think I was released in June of 2004, something like that, May 2004. Okay. Um, so when then uh, when when did you begin your private security contracting career, and what was it that led you to that point? Um, I think my first contract was in 2008, and I I was working. I I do IT. I went to college for uh, IT and um, business information systems, which is not really appreciated. I I think by businesses but that's not my call <laughs> so i was just doing uh, sideline work because uh, I've, I've owned a business in the past and did networking and computer such for small businesses and this opportunity will just happen to present itself uh, i'm i know that you're familiar with secure aspects that they they aren't quite the presence that they were when Afghanistan and Iraq were running at full speed, but uh, Frank Sellers, I don't know if I'm allowed to say his name. You could you could redact that if you need to, but uh, he and his wife were running Secure Aspects, excellent forum. A lot of contract information came out of there, a lot of professionals on there that I've come to know over the years. Yep. And while we're just uh, back and forth on there, a posting comes up, hey, we need some people with different backgrounds to run a project in Iraq. So I said, you know what? I wouldn't mind going back. And in this case, I'd be doing something similar to what I did in the army. Uh, Not the same, obviously, but at least similar in it. The gist of what I was doing was because I believe in security. I believe that everybody should be, free to not be rocketed, mortared, abducted, IED. I I truly believe that the vast majority of all contractors, whether they're working electric or water purification, anything, I believe that the vast majority of our contractors that come at least from the United States, I can't speak for people that come from foreign countries. I don't know what their motives are, but I believe that those of us that do contracting for our government are concerned for everybody, whether it's Americans or the people that we represent overseas or protect overseas. We do not want them blown up because they go to school. We do not want them blown up because they want electricity or clean water. And I think that that is the driving force for most people that contract. I won't say that it's always the case but i do believe that is mostly the case right um yeah i mean there, there are a lot of motivations and a lot of people went over there and still for i mean they, they we all have our motivations um and, and it runs the gamut uh and probably a lot of us have the same motivations and same driving factors but maybe not necessarily in the same order um but yeah, I mean, and once you get over there, uh, maybe some of those uh, motivations, some of those driving factors, maybe they they uh, realign in terms of the list of what's important. Um, and one of those typically is, uh, you know, once you finally figure out uh, 
you know, from eyes on perspective, uh, things tend to change a little bit for you on your outlook on things and your motivations for being there and staying there. Um, so so that said, uh, Tom, what was it? I mean, we all kind of have a similar <laughs> uh, first time there as a private security contractor. What was it like for you uh, from the time you got on that plane and took your flight over and then stepped off the plane and went, whoa, what was that like? And then <laughs> we'll go from there. <clears throat> Do you remember that? I. I, I I would say my my question when I got there was why is this large company so seemingly disconnected? Hmm. The office wasn't laid out. It, it's it's as if not everybody knew what was going on for the workflow. I I met with their personnel. And I met with their admin. Immediately, I was struck by personnel seems more interested in being overseas making money than making sure that all my documentation and everything is taken care of. Mm. And the admin person seemed more like they were interested in how can we get you going so that everything works. Mm. So one hand did not strike me as professional. The other one, 100% professional. Hmm. As it worked out over that year, I wound up working with the admin people. I was assigned to be an admin officer. And I wound up working with this fellow uh, basically every day, doing reports and calling in for ch- changes and, and such. And I could not give this guy more credit. He was 100% on the ball. He knew everything he needed to know and probably then some. Incredibly professional. And aside from that main office being less than organized, I'll just say, everything ran. Mm. Yeah, I, I no real complaints on them being jerked up or anything other than the fact that the personnel person did not seem interested in personnel. Hmm. Maybe that's not what they did for a living and they were assigned to that. I don't, I I can't say for sure. I, I don't know anything about them. What I do know is the time that they spent with me seemed dismissive like they had better things to do. Well, doggone it, you're getting paid 150000 a year to handle my personnel records. Why are you worried about that? So no names will be named. I, I'm not going to name the company. I don't want people to think I'm dinging the company. I'm, I'm not going to name the people. That would be unprofessional. But I will say, no matter how great everything seems, when you sign up, you see that contract, this is what we're doing, this is where we want to send you, would you agree? Yes. You get there. It, it, even if it, even if it were here in the United States with a large corporation, there's going to be a, a problem here and there. That's just the way life is. So I'm not dinging anybody on that regard. That's just the way it is. I'm sure people who are not familiar with the being sent overseas, not doing contracting, will say, oh, I'm sure it's just like working for any McDonald's or Ace Hardware or whatever global corporation is here. I'm sure it's, no, it's not. 
because <laughs> there's that extra step of disconnect between their corporate headquarters in Virginia or Texas or wherever and Iraq or Afghanistan. There's just a disconnect. And that's just the way they have to see it. You, you can expect it to be perfect or you can expect it to be crappy or you can expect it to be anywhere in the middle. It's going to be somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you hit on something that, uh, you know, uh, it, it doesn't just apply to the private security industry, but um, it, it's certainly uh, prevalent in that uh, what you're talking about. And I think a lot of it has to do to some extent anyway, time zones. Um, yes. you know, when, when you're on the ground out there, uh, you're a little bit more concerned about operational stuff, security um, and other things going on there. Whereas the people back home typically have gotten pretty comfortable to their white collar life, for lack of a better term. And so there is a lot of disconnect. I mean, you know, you, uh, things change and priorities in the states are different than the prior priorities uh, wherever we're operating or working. Uh, but time zone certainly adds to it. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, uh, the information that gets transmitted back and forth is uh, what they what they deem is important. What we deem is important is not always the same. But, you know, um, so you work in Iraq and Afghanistan, correct? As a private correct. security contractor. Correct. Yeah. So uh, do you from your recollection, your perspective, um was there a difference in uh, what you saw, what you did in terms of tempo or operations or, uh, you know, just, you know, cultural or operational or security differences? Did you notice a difference or was it just basically the uh, terrain? No, I, I would say it was basically a terrain thing. I, I can't speak for all the contracts. I can't speak for all the companies and even inside the, the companies that I worked with, I couldn't speak for any separate location. But mm-hmm. I'm glad to say that every time I worked overseas, everybody that I worked with overall considered it a serious, no nonsense. We're not jerking around. We're not going to go off and you know get liquored up. We're not going to go do stupid things and harass people, the locals or whatever, they took it seriously. And our job is to work with and also defend the United States while they're over there, whether it be when we're doing convoy for aid or if we're doing base security or if we're training local nationals on proper procedures. Everybody took it seriously and very, very little trouble. I I would say, and this is not uh, a ding on uh, TCNs, the third country nationals, or the other people that we hired to work at lower levels than us. It was that the problems that we did have seemed to stem from the TCNs. And it wasn't because they're, again, grab ass in or getting drunk. It was that their training level was lower than I would have liked, lower than right. I would have expected out of comparable U.S. or even NATO partner nations. And right. yeah. that's not an insult to them. That's simply if you take somebody from a country where they don't have great education, they don't have great infrastructure 
and they don't have a regimented job. And then you bring them into something that's being run by or at least on behalf of the U.S. government where you expect when I say you need to be up at zero five, you need to be up at zero five, not at zero five forty. <laughs> you need to eat your morning meal because when it's one hundred and twenty freaking degrees out, you need your nutrition because otherwise you'll pass out. We, we right. need to train these people. And by the end of these TCN tours, those people that could hack it were fine. You, right. you have your stumbling block. And it, again, it's just like when you're in basic training. You get out of your company or battalion of enlisted, you're going to get a handful of attrition that you can't handle the, the stress or you have an irritation with people giving you orders or whatever it is. You're going to have some people wash out. And that seemed to be the case as well. But none of it was drastic. Hmm. Well, yeah, and and what you I think one of the things that you touched upon was uh, instruction and training and uh, to some extent experience because uh, for the most part uh, the guys and gals that went over there on the private security side from the United States for the most part had the backgrounds and instruction and the training and the discipline and all the stuff that goes with it. So while there was some adjustment as a as a civilian when you got over there. Um, you figured it out in pretty short order, but the um, it, it wasn't such a shock to the system as it was for, say, and again, it depended on the contract and, and the AO, um, you know, TCNs, what we call third country nationals, which basically meant anybody that was in terms of uh, from the American perspective that was not an American and was not a civilian of the local or host nation that we were operating in. Um, but. Third country national doesn't apply to, you know, like, you know, uh, it, it was basically the second and third world countries. It wasn't the right. uh, it wasn't the Europeans or the Canadians. Those were not TCNs. Right. Um, so it did apply specifically. So, yeah. So some of those TCNs, uh, I met some of them, worked with some of them that uh, it was like, whoa, am I glad he's on my team? Um, but plenty of them, like you said, um, didn't cut the muster and or they did. And you could tell that they they had figured it out. They had gotten their in-country, in-field instruction training, and they were spot on. Um, so, it, it, you know, it was a dual-edged sword. But I think that was a lot of the problem right there, especially as time went on. More and more of these TCNs came in without the proper background instruction and training. And it became incumbent upon people like you and me if we if we had if, to take a vested interest in them and uh, help them bring them up to speed so that they were an asset. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't consider myself overall a rude person or a mean person. I do, however, consider myself a fairly strict person. And if I tell you that when you come over and you work on my base, that you need to be up at zero five, you need to prep all your equipment. You need to go to the chow hall and get your morning meal, and you have to report at zero six. Mm. I would need you there at zero six, fed and clothed. <laughs> right. I didn't say six fifteen. I said six. <laughs> right. Right. And I didn't say you don't have to eat breakfast. You have to eat your morning meal because it's one hundred and twenty freaking degrees out. Right. You need the energy to fight that off. Otherwise, you're going to pass out, and then I'm a, I'm down a person. Right. Right. We can't have that. So. And- you would have some guys that couldn't get used to that. We, we had a fellow that just outright uh, did not 
maintain normal thinking processes. Hmm. And he had to go home. We, we uh, had follow on from the second cavalry. And one of the soldiers had painted a glow in the dark fleur de lis in his room. This fellow who no longer retained his normal faculties happened to be in this room with the fleur de lis and it glowed in, in the dark. And he thought that it was a sign from the devil and unfortunately lost his marbles. Hmm. Was not <laughs> it was not uh, a yeah. not a good situation to be in, and the fellow. Are you familiar with the term flat affect? And I don't mean the actor that played Batman. That's a different. That's Ben Affect. <laughs> that's that's not flat affect. That's a different. Uh, well, like for the benefit ben, of everybody, so, why don't you go ahead and, and explain it? So. Uh, there are conditions. It, it can be a neurological thing. It could be a, a nerve thing. Your face shows no facial expression. It's as if you're dead, but you're awake. So there's no smiling, smirking, mm. things that you naturally you notice when you see somebody. If they think something's funny, it's difficult for them to not smile. Or if they say something witty or slighting you somehow. But in a polite way, they'll kind of throw a smirk and you'll see that. But you can't say anything because the way they say it is not outright rude. So flat affect, basically a null facial expression. And this poor fellow, when he snapped, was full flat affect. So you had no idea what he was thinking or doing. Kind of kind of unnerving. We, <laughs> it, well, yeah, it, and sometimes you're not sure. Uh, I mean, we saw that happen with, with our own fellow countrymen and sometimes other people um, for various reasons. And typically, uh, in my at least with me, I, I remember uh, it, when that did happen, it was usually because they everything that's happened to them over the years, both in the military over there and or as a civilian contractor, uh, finally just kind of caught up to them. And, right. Uh, and they needed they needed some time home for a while. But uh, right. Yeah, no, you know, and and uh, you know, so TCNs and LNs, basically anybody that's not a first world Western nation, uh, I mean, we are, even even uh, first world Western nations, we all have different cultural things going about, and that takes in everything from politics to religion to societal stuff, um, and so a lot of that comes into play too uh with these misunderstandings and and these adjustments and and everything that needs to go on to make it happen um so with that said uh do you i'm sure you do um before i I was going to ask you about a specific incident but can you uh clarify for people uh, if if you want to uh in detail or uh, or not uh the reason you are being referred to as recalled. I remember you told me about that, and I thought, wow, that's interesting. Makes an awful lot of sense. I totally get it. Because I'm sure there's some people out there that are going, well, why can't we know the guy's name? Um, do you mind well, expanding on that just a little bit so all. they understand? Not at all. While I was uh, in Afghanistan being recalled during my first tour over there, I worked with a group we 
I was mission ready officer and we would run any mission into or out of Bagram Airfield. That's where I was based. And we did information collection. And that included persons of interest we would bring in and not let back out. So they would be detained. And they'd be detained to the point that you would see them walking around in an orange jumpsuit if they were picking up trash in the United States. So I had to deal with these people regularly in addition to picking them up. And we would interview them regularly. People would like to say that we should torture them to get the information out. But I can tell you we're trained we don't torture them. Not only is that questionable and it's moral standing because you don't know what they've done. I could perhaps argue it's justified if you do know what they've done. But I would never argue with you not knowing what they've done that you should torture somebody. In addition, if I tortured a Jew, I could torture him to the point that he would say he was Muslim. And conversely, I suppose I could torture a Muslim to the point that they would tell me that they were a Jew. You cannot get reliable information from someone that you torture. However, if you repeatedly treat them well and you repeatedly ask them questions where the gist of the question is the same, but you phrase it differently or you insert even the same question into a list of other questions that are different, eventually they will slip up if they're hiding something. Not terribly complicated. And unfortunately, there were four of these fellows that escaped from Bagram, and they know who I am. And I'm sure because I spoke with them almost every day, they know what I sound like and what I look like. And so I do not post any information to the world at large. It would be counter to good OPSEC. And I've had people tell me that, oh, well, what if you're out somewhere and someone takes a picture? I can't stop that. I, I avoid going places where people will take my photo. And I've been to places where they will take my photo, but they ask. And I will tell them no, and I will give them the reason why I don't want my photo taken. And I've never had somebody say, too bad, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and if anybody wanted to be a wise ass, if they did say, well, recalled here, here's his photo. I know he was involved with these people escaping uh, from Bagram or involved with them, not with their escape. I don't know. That came out right. But <laughs> if they wanted to post it, unless they think that the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or whoever wanted to do something to me, wouldn't go to them and kill them and their family first, they're wrong. They would go to them and kill them and their family first to get whatever information they had to come to me. So I don't care if they come after me, but I would care about anybody around me that has no say in it. So that said, if anyone is listening to this and they know who I am, if they feel like they're a smart guy or smart gal and they want to put out who I am, we have no control over that. Luckily, the people that I worked with directly would be professional enough not to do that. Right. I would suggest they don't because, again, they won't come direct to me. They'll come to you first and find out what information you have before they can get to me. 
So it would just be a tactically poor move. Right. So, uh, so, and uh, so, so for the folks that are listening, uh, there you have it, uh, direct from the horse's mouth. Why? Uh, which brings something else into play. Uh, I don't know if we've touched upon this or if we will again, but uh, there are working overseas as a private security contractor, the uh, unique challenges and issues that we face and endure. Um, that uh, as a private security contractor, that are not dissimilar from or from our uh, military uh, brethren, and, and even if it's only because it followed us from our days in the military. So, you know, there's a one highlight as to some of the challenges that we face as private security contractors working there. When we come home, it, we still have to worry about those things, OPSEC, PERSEC, personal security, and other stuff. Um, Absolutely. And yeah. it, it, it's one of those things. Again, you come back from over there and you don't want vehicles near you. You avoid anything in the road. Everybody thinks that you're strange for doing that. And <laughs> the, the unfortunate thing is a lot of the reason that it worked for uh, dead dogs and goats stuffed with explosives is because in the United States, some people drive over dead animals in the road because they do. Well, right. you shouldn't do that anyway. I, I suppose <laughs> if it's unavoidable, it's unavoidable. But why would you deliberately drive over something? Because that's what Americans tend to do. Some Americans right. tend to do. And that made it a perfect reason to plant an IED in the road. Right. People learn that. So you avoid crowds. You don't like people coming up behind you, you know, putting their hand on your back or whatever. What, what are you doing? Don't do that. <laughs> right. Uh, and you've done uh, – we've, we've talked not – necessarily in depth that we've talked about a number of things that you've done as a contractor uh, since your time in the military um, and some of it was pretty interesting some of the places you were uh, and you know embedded this embedded that uh, would you mind going into as much detail as you care to about some of the places you've worked and some of the jobs you've had and and uh, what you did and what it was like sure uh, so one of the things that I did while I was uh, on that tour in Iraq is uh, I worked the blast pit at the main gate for vehicles to come in. And a lot of people are worried about that, understandably so. Uh, they uh, are, You're worried about being blown up. And at the time, we didn't have our back scatter running. Uh, there was no uh, way to scan the vehicle, so it had to be manually done. My take on it is it's probably unlikely that if I am scanning a vehicle and it has an IED in it, that I'll see it, worry about it, and it'll blow up and injure me. More likely, I won't see it. It'll blow up, and I won't know anything about it. And that's tragic. I don't dismiss the, the uh, perfect example of the, the, the two Marines that uh, stood fast while a truck loaded with 5,000 pounds of explosives blew up. And unfortunately, it was only several meters from them when it blew up, but they stopped it. And they had they not stopped it and stood their ground like the champion marine heroes that they are mm. were, mm. that would have killed many, many more people. But right. because they stood their ground, it didn't. Right. But that said, they didn't know that it blew up. They just knew that it stopped. Then when it blew up, they were gone. That's how it should be. No right. long-term suffering or anything. Right. So I wasn't worried about running the, the blast pit. 
lot of the others, I, for want of a better selection, were probably afraid of doing that. That's fine. I, I don't have a problem with that. But I was the admin guy for that camp. You know, pay, advance pay, leave, uh, supplies as the class one and class five uh, supply guy for the, the camp. Uh, had to do reports for the fourth division. That's who we worked for. Did all the reports, daily reports. Just tedious, you know, day in, day out type stuff. There's uh, the, the, the fellow who was in charge there. Very good guy. He was not terribly experienced at being a leader, but uh, he's a really good guy. He treated everybody well, and he had a plan on how to do it. Kind of got backdoored by the number two guy, but it, I, I won't get into that. Then uh, another tour I did was for uh, uh, Embedded Police Mentor. That was a, a tour in Afghanistan. We were attached to Army and Marine Corps units and dispersed throughout the country. We stayed with them in the field, and we worked as liaison with the Afghan National Security Forces, the ANSEF. So Hmm. it didn't matter where you were at, didn't matter what unit you were with, you were assigned to these regional ANSEF units, and our jobs were basically to teach them international policing standards. So we would have to teach them professionalism and procedure, tactics, techniques, which they receive some of that. And I'd like to tell you that if you're overseas and you're up against uh, an Iraqi or an Afghan police or military, that they're as professional as you would want them to be. But the sad truth is they're average educationists horrible the the country itself just does not have the infrastructure yet for it Uh, although we did attempt to address that with the last roughly 20 years of occupation by increasing schooling and the one thing that i can say without any hesitation or doubt is that every ansef post that we were responsible for they were all professional and they all took it seriously Hmm. in fact every checkpoint that was under we had 13 stations that we had to report to to train every station had pet dogs and a lot of people would think that that's peculiar because muslims typically don't like dogs every ncef station that we had report to had to report to or reported with had pet dogs. That's a sign to me. Now you said pet dogs. Now we're talking about we're not talking they what they were or were not there for purposes of security. They did use them as security, but they didn't leash them. They were actually free to run around inside mm. their compounds. They fed them. They some of them had puppies. They just thought that they're the greatest thing. So. Huh. Again, I, there's no direct correlation to that. For, it, it's it's like I had said earlier about torture. I can make anybody say anything if I torture them enough. But rule of thumb is 
Taliban, Al Qaeda do not like dogs. Hmm. Every station we had, and I can't speak for any other nation, uh, I'm sorry, any other station in that country. I can only speak to the 13 that we had. Every one of them had dogs. Hmm. That to me is a sign that they're probably not Al Qaeda or Taliban. Interesting. So that was that was one of the things when, uh, uh, as we're constantly eyeballing and listening um, and assessing everything, uh, that's one of the uh, cues or uh, signs or indicators that you would look for as you're rolling up on a place. Um, should we keep going? Should we slow our roll? Should we, you know, cut or and uh, turn and go back? I mean, that's something you look for, right? That's correct. And hmm. there are. Towns that we would patrol where someone would have a dog, you would hear it. They would have it. And in some towns, uh, the children would be well-behaved. In some towns, they weren't. And in one town, I won't say where, the, these children were throwing rocks at this one fellow's dog. And I scolded them. And I brought one of my interpreters over, and I had them explain, you shouldn't throw rocks at the dog. So an elder says, but the dog is mean. It it bites people. And my response was, I literally just got here. This dog has never seen me, and it's licking me. <laughs> it's, this is obviously not a mean dog. I said, if you throw rocks at it, I wouldn't be surprised if it bites you. Why right. wouldn't it? I said, but you don't understand. I, I know that some people don't like dogs. Even People in America, there are people in America that don't like dogs, people in China or Canada or wherever that don't like dogs. I said, but the fellow that owns this dog, clearly he wants the dog or he wouldn't keep it. But when we came into town, this dog barked. This could be two o'clock at night and somebody that doesn't live in this town shows up. The dog will bark. You will hear it. It's not even your dog. So even if you don't like dogs. This fellow who does like the dog and is keeping the dog has an alarm for you that someone has come into your town. Right. Do you not understand that? Right. So um, in your time as a private security contractor over there, um, is there an incident or an event or a time that really stands out uh, for you, whether it defines your time over there or not? Is there something that... It really stands out uh, that you remember fondly or otherwise uh, that you would like to um, tell people about. Uh, when I was running camp security, we ran security for Camp Julian, which was the um, counterinsurgency camp for the ANSEF. It was originally set up in I want to say 2004 by the Canadians and it's right below the presidential palace immediately below it. And we had a VBIT go off in Kabul that was so large that it was, I want to say it was six kilometers away. It was, it was literally downtown in Mm. Kabul. It was so large that dust came off everything and again we're six kilometers away so Hmm. i immediately think we've been breached 
somebody's trying to get through our fence or our wall. So I do a scan, 360. There's no damage anywhere on our perimeter. So then I zoom out to see if I can see anything, and I see smoke. I zoom in on it. I get the grid. I look to see what it is on the map, and then I get a knock on the door. So we're, we're running a secured facility, no windows, only one door. And I answer the door, and it's the color sergeant for the British contingent. We had a platoon of uh, British commandos there. So he asks if he can come in. He's cleared, so I, I let him in. He says, I have an update for you on that uh, bid that just went off. I said, well, thank you. I'll come on in, and I'll type it in. I'll send it up to command. So we run a computer network sends information back and forth, and it's a direct link for everybody in this network. So I send it, and I said, VBID right here. I gave them a 10-digit grid coordinate. I gave them the dimensions of the crater. I told them what vehicle could come in, and I immediately get a, a boo-boo note from the headquarters. And it was sent by some major who... Uh, I, I don't know. I'm sure he was well-intentioned, but my impression was that he's a tool. So he says, don't send any information that you don't have verification of. Well, fine. All right. I'm just giving you the heads up. So I let it go. About four hours later, after they get verification, they post on the net the exact information that I had given them four hours earlier. <laughs> no apology for being a dick thinking that he knows better because I'm a dirty contractor. See, so what do I know compared to this right. major? This major had previously said that when con the one night supply convoys run at night if they can because there's less traffic. So there's just so many benefits to that. So the convoy had been stopped by a traffic cop in Kabul, and they stopped. I have no idea why they stopped, because we were taught when we ran convoys that you don't stop. So they stopped. Evidently, some lieutenant thought it was a good idea to get out and talk to this cop for 30-some minutes. He decides he's going to let them go, but only if they go back home not to deliver the supplies in the convoy that they were supposed to deliver, which is fine, I guess. I, I wasn't in charge of the convoy. So we get a memo in the morning on this software that does our update. And when we're doing our voice meeting, this major says, I think that's a good idea. I think it's good that we stop and we talk to these fellows. And my response was, if it was a good idea, they would train us in convoy to stop and talk to people. <laughs> the reason they don't teach us that is because it's not a good idea. People far smarter than you or I or this major have wargamed countless scenarios. What could happen? What's the best outcome for us, for the United States in the scenario and it's not stop and talk to the guy that's directing traffic in downtown Kabul. Right. That's <laughs> stupid. And I said so. So I don't know. 
I'm sure they know who I was. I had to log in and everything, and I submitted my reports every day. So I'm sure they knew who I was, but not who I was. So I plainly called him out on it. I said that was stupid. If they wanted us to do that, Army would teach us to do that, and they don't teach us to do that. All you need is one guy in a green uniform. Did he kill the traffic cop and put on his uniform? Did he make his own uniform? Uh, I have no idea. Stop them. Rocket the front vehicle. Rocket the rear vehicle. Kill 48 U.S. soldiers. Great idea, sir. (laughs) Great idea. You're a forking genius, clearly. So we're going to let that go. And later, he, again, tries to scold me for posting reliable information. Mm. Then regurgitates it and doesn't even... He doesn't have the courtesy to even contact me personally. He wouldn't even have to post on the net. Say, hey, you were right. Sorry for being a dick. Nah, <laughs> don't care. He's a dick. If I ever come across him again, I'll know who he is. I'll know he's a dick. Uh, uh, recalled, um, as we um, approach wrap-up time on this uh, on this episode, is there something or some things that uh, you would like to uh, – leave uh for these folks to uh ruminate on or consider or think about is there anything that you like that you feel is important enough that you would like to leave them with i would say if you have the opportunity to do it to contract on behalf of our country you feel that's something you need to do or would even just like to do that you should do it it's an important job it's dismissed out of hand Nine times out of ten, if you hear anything on the news, it's contractor problems. It's never contractors saved this or did that. You, you see things in the, the the movies or on the TV, it's always bad contractors. My my tour with the killer troop and the cavalry, 4-2 Cav, we were at a retrofit station where we would bring our vehicles in once a week for maintenance and there was a navy cb contingent there and their commander literally called us dirty contractors Mm. told his cbs to not associate with the dirty contractors not realizing that we are all former military people and we aren't mercenaries that go to the highest paid contract 90 percent of the people that i worked with that i'm sure that you worked with or anybody else on these overseas government contracts worked with will not go to work for even canada or for even great britain or germany our allies i will only work for the united states and it may be a private contract but it's in support of the united states it's not in support of canada or japan or korea we may aid them but the sole purpose of that contract is for the benefit of the united states right if you think that you should do that or that you would like to do it and you have the opportunity to do it i believe with all my heart that you should do it because it is worthwhile cause you may not get the money that you want and in fact i I saw somebody had mentioned that a company I won't name, but they said uh, it's 350 a day or something like that. Which you'd think, 
about three fifty a day. That's not so bad. Uh, you know, they pay for your food and they pay for your lodging for what lodging is worth over in Afghanistan. But <laughs> when you figure that you're working six hours a day, I'm sorry, six days a week, twelve hours a day, you're working for fourteen dollars an hour. You could be doing that at home in right. the air conditioning. Right. So don't think that all contracts are the same. Don't think that all contract companies are the same. Again, I won't say anything here as an open statement about any of the companies I work for, good or bad. I'll just situationally anecdotal stuff for the most part. But if one-on-one, if somebody were to see me, they were to say, hey, have you worked with these people? Have you worked with these people? Have you worked with I will tell them the honest truth. And if I think that they're boned, I will say that that company is boned. Or I will say I worked with these guys and they were Cracker Jack. I don't know. That's for personal consumption. That would not be a, a public discussion. But right, right. look into it. And if you feel that you have the opportunity to do it and you'd like to do it, by all means, I, I believe you should do it. Absolutely. So, Tom, um, as we bring this uh, episode to a close, uh, how has your life changed? What are you doing now that you um, that you're home as a citizen and you're not going back overseas? Um, well, don't say that. I would if, if the opportunity <laughs> itself were, were a benefit for me. I would certainly do. That. Uh, uh, I, do I do I.T. consulting. I do computer work, custom computers for uh, large number country crunching units it's called a beowulf cluster it's not a real common thing uh, when i started this it was much more of a niche market and now large companies ibm does them dell does them it's much more commodity now so not as big for me but i do network consulting and uh, network security consulting we do human security which is not the same as personal human security, but it is more on how to get humans as an integral part of the overall security plan rather than think, oh, we have four guards and we have closed circuit TV and that's good. But it's not good because if you have somebody that doesn't understand they're part of the system and they're lax with leaving their ID in their car and the car is unlocked while it's at the walmart then they need to be taught that that's part of the problem hmm. so, so you have i'm sorry go ahead i was just gonna say so unfortunately we don't have enough at the corporate level at the c executive level that think that humans are an integral part system-wide they think that only some people are your your network security people are your network security. That's not true. That's their primary job. But the people that use the computers, they are network security too. I don't care who you have in your systems administration or your chief information security officer. I don't care who they are. I don't care what knowledge they have. They could be computer ninja. Doesn't matter if somebody opens an email that says, oh, your email's been hacked. Log in here and change your email. Well, you send them your password. Of course, now your email's been hacked. You just sent the bad guys your password. <laughs> so there are not enough people that un- understand 
that everybody is part of human security system-wide. Right. No matter what their position is, they could be a janitor, they could be the CEO. They all have a role. And the, the biggest problem I see is if, if I tell you, if you get an, an email and it's questionable, I'm going to pretend that there are any of 10,000 things you could do with this email. And I tell you, do not do these four things. That leaves you 9,996 things that you can do. Well, that's the wrong answer. In the military, when they give you a situation, they don't say, don't do these four things, but the other 9,996 you could do. They say, do one of these four things. And we have that backwards, especially in network stuff at computers. Mm. It's, it's always, don't do these things. Mm. So anything else that's not on that list I could do, I guess, like forward <laughs> my mom. No, it doesn't say, no, do these four, one of these four things. And it should be in sequence, right? First thing you should do is reread it. Second thing you should do is verify it. Third thing you should do is report it to your superior. Fourth thing you should do is report it to IT. One, mm. two, three, four. How many breaches would we have done? It'd be a fraction. Right. Pretty cut and dry. Uh, recall, is there, um, for for folks that are listening, um, if somebody's interested, how would they uh, contact you um, either to discuss whatever, uh, whether it's business um, or if they just want to get a hold of you? How, how can they get a hold of you? What uh, name of your company, um, email address, anything? Um, I would say if they could go through you, that would be the, the best way to, to do it. Okay. I don't want to put you on the on the uh, hot spot there, but uh, if you want to filter out anybody that's questionable, and I, I can reach them that way. Okay. Even if all you have to do is do first level screening and pass that information on to you. <laughs> I will do that. Okay. Well, with that uh, recall, I want to say thank you very much uh, for taking time out of your day and coordinating this uh, to get on here and talk with me on this show. It is much appreciated. And uh, no, again, I appreciate the fact that anybody wants to hear any of my. Uh, <laughs> well, you and I have had a great yeah, many discussions and, and some of, and a lot of stuff we just a, can't yeah, talk about right now. It's been <laughs> quite, a, quite a while, actually. We, we know each other probably going on 15 years, so. Yeah. Damn close, huh? <laughs> yeah. And again, for anybody that wants to tell me about the four people that escaped from Bagram, they're dead or they're captured or whatever, are they? Because we've had this in the past where we've sent a, a Reaper drone and a Maverick missile into somebody and, oh, two years later, they pop up on a video. Ha ha, you didn't get me. Right. So for anybody that wants to tell me that I'm being paranoid because those four guys are dead or captured, no, I don't right. distrust it, but I don't <laughs> trust it. Right. Okay. So thank you for tuning into this episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. Again, my guest, uh, we used the moniker uh, recalled. And uh, thank you to all of our listeners and those who spent their time and effort supporting us. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until the next one, keep it real.